Hi, this is Tia Sarkar. I play Sabine Wren on Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to Twin Suns Transmission. Of course, it ends where it becomes a desert planet with twin suns. Hey, my name is Taylor Gray, and I play Ezra Bridger in Star Wars Rebels. I hope you enjoy this week's episode of Twin Suns Transmission. Here's where the fun begins. Let's make this epic more interesting. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Twin Sons Book Club podcast. My name is Eric, and today I am joined by Christian, and we are going to be continuing our discussion in the High Republic era with our discussion on Into the Dark by Claudia Gray. Now, Christian, this is the third book in the High Republic era that we're diving into, and it's essentially our phase one that uh, we're completing here. And I haven't read any of the comics or anything like that, but novel-wise, we're basically done with phase one, and, and we'll get more in the summer and the next upcoming months and stuff, but what do you think, just in general, of the High Republic era's addition to Star Wars? Oh, I love it. I mean, we've been seeing so much of the Skywalker saga, and I know we had stuff in Legends of other time periods in Star Wars, but when all of that became Legends No Longer Canon, we had nothing. So really cool to see a different glimpse into the High Republic, get this new villain in the Nile, and really get to see the Jedi at the height of their power. So I loved Phase 1. It was, it was kind of interesting reading um, all those books back to back to back, because it's like we got a trilogy all at once. But it wasn't really a trilogy of books because it was all set in the same time period with different characters. But I loved it. Yeah. I love the the casual mentions, too, of some of the characters that we got in previous books. Like in this one, uh, we find out that Reef, sort of the main character, he's actually friends with Vernestra and Imri, which we read about in um, A Test of Courage by Justina Ireland. And it was just a, a very quick mention of them. You know, like, oh, I hope I see them again or something like that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, all being Padawans. But I love the consistency and the effort that was placed on this era as far as continuity. So really great in that regard. Uh, but we did get brand new characters in this book, Christian. And the main one, Reith Silas. Let's talk about him a little bit. What do you think about his character? Yeah, somewhat similar to Test of Courage, where we kind of have another coming-of-age story, although it's obviously going to be a little bit different um, with, with Reef. But Claudia Gray is really great with characters, and even though there's a lot of action in this book, I think it was a little bit more character-driven, but really was interesting to see Reef as he's this more kind of academic Jedi. He'd rather um, be in the library reading and doing research than being out uh, kind of in the galaxy, new places and and fighting, which is kind of the opposite of what we think from a Jedi. You think a Jedi, they just want to go see the galaxy. Like we we see Anakin, he had his wanderlust to see. I mean, he said he wanted to see every single star system. Um, he loved the adventure, so it was really cool to see a Jedi who originally didn't really love that adventure type of being a Jedi, and then see how that evolved as the story went on. 
Yeah, and you think about his master, Jorah, um, Mm -hmm. and the apprentice that uh, served under her prior to Wreath, and that's Des Rydan, and he was very much like Anakin in that way. Like, he was adventurous, and he wanted to be out there and all that stuff, Um, and Wreath, that just wasn't who he was. That's not his character. But I really do like how... Throughout a lot of these stories, we get Jedi who are really good at certain things, and then other Jedi aren't good at those things. They're good at something else, and everybody has their talents, and you know it's very similar to our world. You're not going to be good at everything. Some people are better at some things and, and things like that, so I really do like the, even within the Jedi Order, the variety of the different types of Jedi that we're getting. Yeah, it's definitely really unique. We see some similarities um, to Jedi we have now. Like uh, Orla Jereni, I'm probably saying that wrong, um, but she's a way seeker, and that seems kind of similar to what Qui-Gon probably would have wanted to have been, so it's cool to see some parallels, uh, but yeah, really, all the Jedi that we're seeing are they're pretty unique. Right, and she was actually my favorite character in this book. Um, I really like that she's Umbaran. I really like that she has a double-bladed white lightsaber. I thought that was very cool. And I love, I loved her attitude, and I loved the way that Claudia Gray brought her character to life. And and uh, I remember seeing on the whiteboard of the behind the scenes stuff for the High Republic, and seeing the term Gray Jedi on there, and I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Gray Jedi, hold the phone, what is this about? Because for me, I, I've always I've always had an issue with that term. I don't know if you have an opinion on that or not, Christian. But for me, gray Jedi is an oxymoron. It's like saying little giant. Mm-hmm. Like if you are a Jedi, you're inherently light. You follow the light. You follow the path of the light side, which, you know, and then when you have the dark side, that's where the balance comes in and... To me, Grey Jedi was just an oxymoron. So I always called those particular characters neutral force users so that the Jedi word wasn't actually in, you know, describing those characters. Um, but with this book, the separate term of Wayseeker really made sense to me, and I loved that. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, the Grey Jedi term is kind of funny like you said it's it is like saying little giant it's hard to have both especially if they're equal power you can't really have someone who's equal in the dark and the light because i just think the dark would kind of overwhelm it's really hard to find that balance um maybe you could say it's a very light gray they they have overwhelming light um, but they're able to harness some parts of the dark side or use that for their benefit i'm not sure but yeah being 50 50 um that doesn't seem to seem to work but i really did like the way seeker um and also your term of the kind of neutral force user it's sort of like you don't really the, the way i say it, like a way seeker is they don't see the division between the light and the dark they just try and see the force for what the force is and they don't want to have this kind of boundary um, limit what they think the, the force is or to have it kind of mess with their perception of the force. They just want to kind of go on their own and 
see w- what the force is for what it is. And um, I don't know. Yeah, the, the term gray does kind of seem to keep the boundaries of dark and light when it seems like the purpose of it is to not have those boundaries. Yeah. And the way that they describe it in this novel is a Jedi who operates independently of the dictates of the Jedi Council. And I mean, that to me sounds exactly like Qui-Gon. Like I thought, oh, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe Qui-Gon Jinn. And so we kind of put that out there uh, to some of our listeners on on social media and uh, stream Duel of the Fates says, I thought of Qui-Gon as well, but she seems even more at odds with the Council than uh, than he did, in my opinion. I can see her falling into the Grey Jedi category if that tension continues. That would be very interesting. So, And then Zach, Zach said, I think this is the closest to a Grey Jedi that we will get besides characters like Ahsoka, who leave the Jedi Order completely. I like that the Wayseekers are still a part of the Order and have their own code, even if they do not take commands from the Council. So I think those are both good responses. And it kind of really showed us in the, you know, the the past parts of the chapters, the 25 years earlier, um, the struggle that that both Orla and Comac went through uh, when you have sort of the force telling you to do one thing, but then your master telling you to do another thing. And so if you're disobeying the force, is that really the right thing to do, you know? And so I thought that was a really great kind of uh, way to show us and get us to understand what these Jedi are going through when they're balancing orders from the council versus the force. I mean, yeah, that is kind of an interesting dilemma that I think a lot of us can relate to. Uh, Obviously not maybe the force telling us to do something, but we have a superior telling us to do something and our intuitions pulling us another direction. I mean, young Jedi, they're, they're taught to respect um, authority. So yeah, that is really interesting. And at the end of the day, the Force is kind of the, their ultimate authority. So really cool learning experience to, to go through. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know if you had remembered this from Light of the Jedi, but I remember thinking that Jorah Mali was just so cool. This, you know, another Togruta Jedi that was out there during the High Republic era. And I remember her getting killed by the Nile. And then the prologue of this book had her alive with her Padawan. And even before I finished that prologue, I'm like, oh, no, I can see where this is going. This is not going to go well for Wreath. But did you did you think of that? Did you remember that she had died? <laughs> yeah, I did. I was like, oh, no, you, you come like it's really interesting reading a book like this and it having knowledge about it's, it's not like a flashback or anything. Um, right. Just it just takes place at the same time. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. So it is really strange. But uh, I mean, like some people might read Into the Dark first. I mean, that's perfectly understandable it's not really like you have to read light of the jedi first it came out first but um yeah, i was kind of sad to recognize that and know yeah things were not going to go well for wreath he seemed pretty um i don't know obviously he, he loved his master and um it was kind of sad to know that it was not going to go well like you said yeah 
Well, I think that's a perfect transition for us to talk about uh, Reith and what happens with him toward the end of the book without his master and um, you know where where we decide to go with that. The council ends up giving him a choice. You know, do you want to continue your training? Have you made a decision? Do you want to keep going? What you know, what is your choice on this? Which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and obviously, if you haven't finished the book by now, I would definitely finish the book before listening to the rest of the podcast. But Wreath um, makes a decision to take it upon himself to ask Comac to be his master. And they're definitely very different types of people. But but Comac agrees at the end of this. And uh, I think that'll be a very interesting dynamic going forward. But Christian, what did you think of not only... Wreath becoming a Padawan again, but Comac's character and how that dynamic's going to play out. Um, well, I think I first want to say that I love that the Jedi Order gave Wreath a choice. They gave him the uh, autonomy to make his own decision, which um, I think is really strange for us. Like you said, it was, it was kind of weird. Really strange to see because we're used to the Jedi Order, the Skywalker saga and the prequels, which I don't think they would have done that then. They would have been Mace Windu would have been saying, you're doing this. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I think especially maybe with Anakin, give him some sort of, I know this is a little bit of a tangent here, but if they gave him some sort of autonomy, uh, maybe when he started his training, they tell him, here's all the dangers we see with you becoming a Jedi. It's your choice. What do you want to do? Um, I think that's really, really empowering and a really cool piece of the High Republic Jedi Order that, makes him superior. Um, but I, I really liked the decision by Wreath to, um, you know, become a Padawan again. Um, and interesting choosing um, Comac, right? Is Comac that he chose? Yes. I thought it was yeah. Dez. Uh, Dez actually went off oh, and Dez is doing this. Uh, oh, okay. I just bar- got that mixed up a little bit. Barash yeah. something. He's going off to do the Barash That's vow. Oh, but yeah, I think, it, like you said, it'll be an interesting dynamic to see between, between uh, him and Comac. Um, I mean, I think it's going to be really good for Wreath, seeing as Comac has kind of gone through a similar character arc where Comac is also this academic. He's the one that wrote a lot of the footnotes in the books that Wreath was reading, but then Comac is making a decision to kind of go out into the galaxy, which is kind of counterintuitive to both of their natures. So I think it's going to be great for Wreath being interesting, interesting dynamic as they're both kind of learning to expand uh, their own comfort zones together. Yeah, I agree. And I I really liked Comac's character uh, throughout this one. I think, you know, we, at, at one point on the Amexine station, he actually levitated up in the air and projected his voice so loudly that basically everybody on the station could hear him. And that's what I love about this era, just learning more about the Jedi and what abilities that they have. I mean, there's a lot more discussion on levitating now, and obviously we've seen some of that happen throughout other parts of Star Wars. I mean, we see Rey do it with all the rocks in The Rise of Skywalker, things like that, but I really like seeing some of this stuff with the Jedi during this time of peace, be able to utilize some of their, some of the really cool powers. Um, I thought it was very professional of him as a Jedi to take on a, his first apprentice 
And I love one of the lines, I don't remember exactly what it was, but through teaching, you learn things. And I think, you know, that's something that Reith could benefit from too at some point down the road when he's a master. I mean, he just loves information and loves knowledge that I think to him, having a Padawan is a no-brainer because that's what he just loves it. Um, And I thought it was kind of interesting symbolism that that Wookiee baby at one point in this book ripped off his Padawan braid. So we'll see what happens with, with him. Let's go ahead and talk about another character, Afi Hollow, and she's another young character, young female character that we got in this book. Not a Jedi or anything like that, but a crew of the vessel who's working for the Bind Guild under Scover, who's essentially her adoptive mother. What did you think of her character? It was interesting to see how she kind of learned more and more about her guild. Um, when it started, it seemed like she had complete trust and faith in the guild and um, her mother, who, who she calls her mother, and just kind of the walls slowly start to crumble around her as she sees the symbols on the on the station. Um, she talks to her mother, who's the leader of the guild. And just slowly begins to realize everything kind of her whole life isn't as she thought. And then have her kind of struggle with the decision of, well, do I continue um, with what I know? Do I try and break away? And then eventually she does break away. Definitely an interesting character arc for a character that wasn't the main character of the book. What did you think about her decision at the end, too? I mean, she's... She's kind of stuck between two, like a rock and a hard place, right? If you do the right thing, um, not only are you going to go against your mother, uh, but you essentially are throwing away your opportunity to run the guild at some point. Uh, But on the other hand, you could not do the right thing and just ignore the fact that there's some shady stuff going on with indentured people Uh, working for this guild i mean she had a tough choice there and at the end of the day she went to the republic and they arrested her mother yeah i think some of the weight of the decision um maybe if more of her relationship with her mother was developed i think it would have even weighed heavier but i mean obviously that's the life-changing decision uh i mean like you said she was going to take over the guild And obviously that's going to give her lots of power and honestly lots of power to do good with, with it. But um, I mean, it it was kind of a Jedi decision, even though she's not a Jedi, but completely selfless, putting the needs of others before yourself. So it is cool to see like Gen Jedi like qualities um, in other protagonists, which is pretty cool. Now, she worked on the vessel with Captain Leox and then Geode, who was basically just a boulder, just a, a rock. <laughs> um, and I was just waiting for your Geode to do something. Um, and they always they always talked about Geode's expressions or his attitude and things like that. I'm like, How, what is this? And you can find the concept for him online, and it's just a rock. I mean, it, it literally is just a figure that looks like a rock. 
And so I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and it was a, a good addition to the book to keep us wondering about what is this character going to do. And at the end, of course, he saves Wreath from flying out of the ship. And uh, I actually put out a question in a lot of our groups, like, who's your favorite character? And multiple people said Geode. And that was just hilarious to me because the dude literally didn't do much. Um, but I think just throwing a character like that in there that just has such a weird appearance, it's just an object that you would not expect to actually be a sentient being come and save the day sometimes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, probably the most unique character in Star Wars. I mean, <laughs> It's really funny that um, all of our main characters outside of um, Affy and Leox, they're kind of in the same boat we are. They're meeting Geo for the first time, and they're like, "What the heck? This is a, this is a pert like they say this is the co-pilot, <laughs> right? They want this rock to bring it like, uh, bring us through hyperspace or use the computer. Like, what is this? And I mean, we don't know. How does Geode move around? How does Geode, you know, I mean, like you said, Geode's a rock." Yeah. How does Geo do anything? Um, but it is funny. They like look over and Geo's gone. They're like, what? <laughs> I know. Move? It's hilarious. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was so silent. Like, how did that happen? And then how did he save the day at the end? We don't know. But um, Geo came off of ha- as having like some sort of personality with the expressions. He seemed sarcastic. Um Seems like he's having to bite his tongue a lot. All these weird personality traits that from Geo doing nothing at all. Um, pretty creative writing by Claudia Gray. I wonder how um, Geo would be presented on the screen. <laughs> Just a rock sitting there. I don't know. Yeah. Probably I've... on a screen, but really interesting. I... I think you hit the nail on the head with the fact that you said creative writing by Claudia Gray, um, because when you're watching something on screen, you can see expressions or you can see how something is is looking or acting when you're reading it and you still get the fact that Geode is a sarcastic character without Geode even saying anything. I mean, the writing in that has to be phenomenal. So I think... Claudia Gray should earn some extra points there for being able to convey emotions and an attitude uh, with a character that literally is a rock. So <laughs> it's funny to say that it's true though. It's literally, literally just a a boulder sitting in the ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I thought that was definitely an interesting dynamic to bring those characters in. And what we've talked about here, Wreath, Orla, Comac, Affy, and then the crew, Leox and Geo, were kind of the main characters of the story. Um, and I was a little confused as to, like, oh, when are the Nile going to show up? Like, what's going on here? And as you read through it, there were definitely clues. But the main Nile characters that we get in this one is the uh, young, small girl, Nan, and her uh, sort of caretaker, a Zabrak named Haig. And they kind of got under the nose of the Jedi a little bit. The, the Jedi didn't realize they were part of the Nile and until later. Um, but what did you think about the Nile presence in this with Nan and Haig kind of being under the radar for a little bit? 
it's kind of interesting. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way I do about this, but I feel like there's some storylines in the book that weren't completely delved out. And I feel like with the Nile, this was almost part of it. It felt like they had a pretty insignificant part of the story. I mean, they weren't the main villains, which is understandable. But, like, for example, with uh, Nan and Reef, uh, when they first met, I thought the two of them were going to have a very interesting dynamic, something that's really present in Clyde Gray's novels are relationships. We see this especially in Lost Stars, um, which is my, I think, my favorite Star Wars novel, a lot of people's. The relationship dynamic um, between Thane and Sienna is just fascinating. I thought we were going to have something kind of similar to that with Reith and Nan, but it just kind of fell flat. Um, didn't feel like it was completely delved into. And I'm wondering if we might have seen some more of the Nile as well if Claudia Gray completely delved into it. Yeah, I when I first was reading it, and obviously I didn't think anything of of Claudia Gray describing Nan's hair as having blue streaks in it, and then of mm -hmm. course they make the connections as the book goes on, and I feel like now for the authors it's gonna it's gonna be a lot harder to confuse us or trick us it, you know if you describe somebody as having blue streaks anywhere i feel like we're all gonna be like oh they're part of the nile you know um but i feel like with that relationship when they were first describing it and she described it as almost nan flirting with wreath and wreath kind of being like oh wait i shouldn't i shouldn't be flirting i, I hope she doesn't think i'm flirting or, or whatever it is i'm like yeah, I wonder if there's going to be a relationship here. Um, so in that in that respect, I definitely thought there there might be something. But at the same time, uh, once I found out that she was part of the Nile, I was just like, oh, it was just a show. It was just an act. She, I don't know if she really cared that much. She saved him at the end by not shooting him. Um, sort of a, a life for a life type thing. But as I thought about it, too, reading back through my notes and everything, I mean, she basically was like, you saved me once, I saved you once, we're square. But reading through the notes again, he actually saved her twice because they pulled the Nile ship in with a that tether so it wouldn't get blasted by the solar flares. And then he cut that... Uh, that dude's arm off who was going to kidnap her. So he actually was there multiple times for her. And I don't know if, I don't know what her, her end game is. We know at the end that she's kneeling before Martian Rowe. And we know that she told Wreath, uh, one day you will bow before the Nile. So maybe it is, you know, maybe sparing his life and telling him, you know, one day you'll bow before the Nile. Maybe that is sort of like a, I, I actually like you and I don't want to kill you. I don't know. But to me, kind of when, when I found out she was Nile, I was like, that's just a show. But I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Yeah, I think you really could be right. Um, I think definitely the way it was presented. I just thought we might see a little bit more maybe before he realized that she was Nile. Uh, but I guess, yeah, yeah, the story's not over yet. They're both still alive and they'll probably meet up again. So... Could be more coming, and I'm hoping Claudia Gray is the one to write it. Oh, yeah, definitely. I did see uh, the front of, of something, or maybe it was just an image online, that it looked like uh, Avon Staros 
uh, Vernestra and Wreath were all on were all on the same image. So I don't know if that's a book that's coming out. I don't know if that's uh, Race from Crash Point Tower, which is a novel that's coming out. So I'm kind of interested to see how much overlap we're going to get from authors using other authors' characters, if that'll happen a lot. I don't know. Yeah, it does seem kind of interesting. I mean, I know they all discuss and plan this whole thing out, but it is kind of weird to to write about a character that another author developed originally and be trading them around. Um, that could be really good. Yeah. Well, let's finish up on the Nile here. I did write down in my notes that the Nile actually have energized pole arms that can parry lightsabers which I thought was interesting because you think about the Nile just being, you know, nobody important. They're not force sensitive. They're just humans and other species that are part of this giant group that use toxic gas and stuff. You throw them up against the Jedi. It's like, okay, well, the Jedi are going to win this every time, but you give the Nile a means to defend against lightsabers, you know, and who knows what that rod is that Martian Rowe has that we talked about before. I mean they could potentially be a greater threat to the Jedi than we think. Yeah, the pieces of the puzzle are kind of coming together. I mean, I agree when it when the book started, or um, when this whole universe started with Light of the Jedi, had the perspective of, okay, the writers were thinking, what scares the Jedi? And then we just get some kind of drugged out, high adrenaline, like basically biker gang on the edge of the galaxy. It's like, okay, <laughs> right. yeah, that's not gonna, but yeah, now it's like, well, they have this way to navigate through hyperspace. Um, that's completely unique and looks like it uses the force. Um, they might be able to, I mean, this is what we're hypothesizing is they might be able to inhibit force abilities and now that they can even combat lightsabers, like they're taking away all sorts of weapons of the Jedi, and they seem like a perfect threat to the Jedi. I mean, and they're ruthless too. Um, I mean, at the end of Light of the Jedi, they're kind of technique for keeping a Jedi imprisoned by torturing other people around them to basically use <laughs> people getting tortured, their anguish. Um, against the Jedi. It's really, really unique. And I mean, I think the Jedi should definitely be afraid. Yeah. And I like in this one too, they talk about the ships of the Nile. They're sort of composed of bits and pieces and parts and things of other ships. And, you know, they can kind of, you have this one big ship, but it can separate itself into smaller ships and you think you're fighting one, but then it becomes three and, you know, it's, uh, definitely hard to deal with regarding that. So I think I definitely agree. I think the Nile are increasingly interesting with every book that we that we get and the little tidbits of information that we get on them. But as you had mentioned earlier in the show, Christian, they weren't the main villains of this novel. We got a brand new group of characters, and I could be watching this uh the name of them the drengear the drenger i don't know how you said it but they were the main villains in this book what do you think about them yeah i mean i i really found them interesting uh, when i saw pictures of them you're like what the <laughs> what is that and 
I was definitely wondering like what place. Um, I, mean, I think what drain gear. I'm not, I'm not completely sure. Let's either. go with that because I think that's how I said <laughs> it. The gear. drain gear. Yeah. yeah. Um, like what's their place in the story with the Nile? And I think that's still kind of yet to be fully determined. But pretty one really unique species as they're kind of a plant-based species and um i guess some of upon they're deeply rooted in the dark side of the force which i think we still have a lot to learn about um but i really do wish we i i think we will learn a lot more about them but for them to be deeply rooted in the dark side of the force and to scare the sith so badly that the Sith have to trap them on the station. Um, I don't think there's much that scares the Sith. I don't even think necessarily that the Jedi scare the Sith. So if the drain gear are really that treacherous, um, and it appears that they are, I mean, that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, I hope we learn more about their relationship with the dark side of the force, maybe in comics or future novels. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Because, I mean, if you think about what we have going on right now, I mean, it's all about the Jedi. This is a time of peace. The Sith haven't been around. However, they are around. We know they've. the Jedi think that they're not, but the, but the Sith aren't extinct. They're still, they're still around out there somewhere, um, hiding, very patient. But think about this, though. We have basically no presence of the dark side at all. I mean, we see some of the characters like Imri in the last book kind of turn to the dark side for a second, but then it's like, okay, we're done. That's fine. But like in, in this one, we find out that the Drengir are rooted in the dark side, that they were trapped by the Sith in these idols, uh, which were actually meant to contain the darkness on the station. And then obviously when they took the idols off the station, that released them through the station. But think about them specifically, right? I mean, we saw them get cut in half and the tendrils kind of reattach themselves. I don't know if, did you ever watch the, um, the micro series, the Clone Wars micro series with Dirge? No, I don't think so. So it's the Gendi Tartakovsky micro series that was on Cartoon Network in the early 2000s. And there's a bounty hunter named Dirge. And literally all he would do is just mess people up. I mean, he was ruthless. He went toe-to-toe with Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan cut his arms off and everything and cut him in the, in the stomach and left him to die there. But he was composed of some material that would literally just like spindle back together. Like these tendrils would literally just entwine and pulled the arm back to the body and pulled the chest and the hips together and he was fine. And that's what reminded me of the Drengear in this book because they literally did the same thing. He stood back up and was like, continued his conversation. Not only that, but they were able to essentially break the force connection of Dez. Right, you think about that and Des's choice at the end of the book to go off and kind of try and regain his connection in the Force through that vow that he's going to try and do. Um, he was barely able to stand. He was poisoned. I mean, that's definitely a problem for the Jedi. If, if you can't cut them up and they can essentially hinder your ability to call upon the Force, I mean, to me, that's almost even more frightening than the Nile. 
Yeah, and I guess we do need to learn more about that because um, how exactly did they break the connection? Was it through their manipulation of the Force somehow or was it through um, whatever poison that they gave? But I guess, yeah, either way, um, that's pretty <laughs> devastating that they have that ability because it doesn't seem just temporary where I think a lot of what the Nile were talking about they may be temporarily they can um, defend a lightsaber or inhibit force abilities, even though that's still obviously very hypothetical. But yeah, this does not seem temporary. And who knows on what scale they can do that. But if it's a larger scale, I mean, like, like we're talking about, we have another villain that should really, really scare the Jedi. And that's what I'm wondering, too. Do you think the Nile has been a cover on Lucasfilm's part as the main villains of this era? And the Drengir are actually what scare the Jedi. And, you know, the Nile will become irrelevant at some point. Or maybe not. I don't know. You know, it could be. Um, I, I think it's possible that they team up to some degree. It's kind of cliche for villains to, like, oh we have this common enemy and the Jedi let's team up and take them out. I think that is possible. So I definitely think that it might be the Nile who would more so want to team up. I think the drain gear would more of just want to demolish kind of everything in their path. They don't really care about teaming up, but I do think it's a possibility um, for that team up to happen. But I do think that you're, you're right. The drain gear do seem scarier to the Jedi intuitively so it could be maybe some sort of a cover-up where we think the Nile are the big scary villain but maybe the Drangir do take over well there's only one way to find out and that's to continue reading these books and I kind of want to take a couple minutes now Christian to hypothesize and I don't know if you like to hypothesize I kind of like to to think about what could happen with with friends and things like that um but I don't, I don't like to spend too much time on it because I feel like hypothesizing and expecting things can sometimes ruin it for people. And I feel like, especially in the Star Wars community, when something doesn't happen that you think is going to happen, that ruins your expectations and then people freak out a little bit. So I don't like to hypothesize too much. But I do want to kind of take a, a couple minutes here and try and discuss what we found out about the end of each of these books so far that we've read about in this era and talk about where things could go. So like we said earlier, all three books in phase one took place during the same time period with the very end of each book. Uh, kind of ending with the dedication of the Starlight Beacon, and then the beginning of the book sort of kicked off with the hyperspace disaster, the Great Disaster. And that happened with all three books. So at the end of Light of the Jedi, we have sort of Avar Chris kind of taking over as the, the leader, right? The Jedi representative of Starlight Beacon. Uh, we obviously know that Loden Greatstorm is in the possession of the Nile, and kind of uh, like you had talked about, you know, they're torturing other people in that area. Uh, we know that the Nile have the ability to, you know, leave the Outer Rim and potentially just appear above the Jedi Council or, or you know, in Coruscant. And their plan is to expand into the main part of the Republic uh, and eliminate the Jedi. 
In a test of courage, we know that Vernestra Rowe is now going to be the uh, sort of Jedi mentor master, if you will, to Imri. And then with this one, um, obviously, Comac is going to be the master of Wreath. And we have Nan at the end of this book kind of bow before Martian, Martian Rowe. And we were just introduced to the Drangir, uh, who could become a formidable opponent for the Jedi and basically anyone who goes up against them. So where do we go from here? Phase one's done. And what do you think we're going to get as far as the stories that we get next? <laughs> well, there's definitely a lot going on. I mean, we can kind of go on and on about everything we learned. Oh, yeah. Um, really, really cool that we have that much information to go off of. Yeah, I'm kind of like you where I don't like to think too much about it, but I think it is interesting to think about where the story will go. Um, I think we might have some books where the enemy wins, where maybe the ending isn't uh, so great. I mean, all these books had their conflict, had their ups and downs, but for the most part... Um, the Republic or the the Jedi came out on top in the end. I think we might see, in some cases, maybe the Nile kind of finishing on top or the Drangir finishing on top, and we'll have to have another wave of books that kind of have um, the Jedi or the Light coming back. Uh, but we're going to definitely learn a lot about what scares the Jedi of the Nile or the Drangir and I think the Jedi are going to take some pretty, and the Republic too, they're going to take some pretty massive blows in this next wave of books. Yeah, I agree. I, I really want to get more of the Chancellor Lena So with her two big giant cat things. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think she's a very interesting character. We got a little bit of her in uh, Light of the Jedi, but I'm really looking forward to getting more on her character because I like that a lot. Um, as I mentioned before, my favorite character in this book was Orla, and I really enjoyed what we got at the end of the book with her. She's kind of going off to be this way seeker. She got her new ship called the Light Seeker, and I feel like she's going to be a character where we may have a break from her for a little bit, but then she'll come in at crucial moments down the road and save the day a little bit or something like that, you know? Um, I think it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out with Martian Rowe and and Loden Greatstorm. I think that was a major cliffhanger at the end of Light of the Jedi, and I'm, I'm very excited to see how that plays out. Um, I think it'd be interesting, too, if maybe some of these Jedi that are, are in the Outer Rim um, and kind of hanging out in the Outer Rim, like Comac and, and Wreath, maybe they go, maybe they get a call and they're like, oh, well, we have this Jedi that's, you know, captured by the Nile, let's figure out where they are and go try and get them or something. You know, I don't know. But I think trying to mix up some of the characters from authors and, and things would be interesting. And uh, to, at some point, we'll get all these characters kind of together. You know, I think that's what was great about the New Jedi Order series and what happened prior to that with Legends um, is a lot of these a lot of these people created characters like the Yuzhen Vong. I think Timothy Zahn created the Yuzhen Vong and Mara Jade. But then, as time went on, other authors brought Mara Jade in, and characters that all of these authors created. I think uh, even Corin Horn, who was I don't know if that was a 
Michael Stackpole character, but then other authors wrote about them. And it created this really interesting dynamic reading about characters that different authors had created, but now everybody's together. So I think that that was part of the purpose for this, is that these authors have their own characters, and they write about their own characters, but then at some point, all these characters are going to kind of cross paths, and everything is going to interweave. That's what I think, but I don't know. Yeah, I think, like you said, that all these characters are eventually going to get together, um, but in what fashion? I don't know. Like, is the final book just going to be super climactic with all these characters together telling one epic final story? Um, I'm not sure. So exactly how the story will end. Maybe it will be told in different parts, like you said, with characters all kind of um, traded between the authors. But regardless of how they do it, I have full faith in the authors, it's very clear they have a plan. Unlike, even though I enjoyed the movies, a sequel trilogy, even those that have enjoyed it can admit that they did not have a plan for how the story was going to go. Um, I totally think, really, and know that they have a plan, and I'm really excited just to continue watching them execute it because phase one was so good. Yeah. And you got me thinking as you were just talking, like, what fashion are they going to conclude the High Republic era or, like, how are they going to do that? I did just think, too, that the Acolyte, which is going mm -hmm. to be taking place during this era, uh, I know toward the end of the era. Um, so I don't know if that'll be kind of like the final way to end this era is by having a TV show or if it's just going to be, you know, another another addition to the story. Um, that is not the conclusion, I don't know, but I thought maybe that could be an interesting way to kind of put the end cap on this, you know, amazing era of Star Wars that they've, that they've created, um, and to be able to potentially see some of these characters that not only do we have concept art of, but we've read about them for years, you know, maybe make an appearance on screen. I think that would be pretty interesting as well. And I think we've talked about how cool some of this stuff is in the books would be visually. I mean, seeing um, the lightsaber whip, the double-sided white lightsaber, even seeing Geode or the Drain Gear, um, all these things would be so cool visually in a TV show. I don't think we'll see all of that, but maybe we'll see some of it. Who knows? I'm just excited. I'm just really excited for the Acolyte, too, and what the possibilities are there. Oh, yeah. Definitely agree with that. Um, and I, I have to say, when the High Republic stuff was coming out and there was a ton of hype around it, I mean, to be honest, I don't really enjoy reading. I know that might, might be hard for some people to believe with the book club and everything. I just don't. I'm not a reader. But I love reading about Star Wars to learn about the, the story and learn about what, what happens. Um... And so for me, I don't like I don't get excited about the act of reading, but I could not wait for the High Republic book to release. I just could not wait to learn more about this era, and I think they've done a fantastic job with it. But I think that will pretty much conclude our discussion on Into the Dark, unless you have anything else, Christian. Um, I mean, that's basically it. I love the story. Um, if you read my review... 
which is posted now online. I just mentioned that some of the plot lines I talked about, Reith and Nan's uh, relationship, could have been delved into a little bit more. Um, but it really just gives this book more potential to be even better. I gave it a very high score the way it was. I loved it. Um, I loved all of the High Republic novels, and they really do leave you wanting wanting a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. And as we had talked about before, we already have a full lineup for our books uh, over the next couple months. And for the month of April, we are going to be diving into the final book of the Alphabet Squadron uh, trilogy. And that is going to be Victory's Price by Alexander Freed. I, I really did enjoy the uh, first two books in the trilogy. I actually had to go back and listen to the podcast that we recorded on those just to kind of refresh my memory a little bit about what happened. Um, and I know that you're in the middle of it. And before we started recording tonight, you had told me that you like it so far. So very excited about that. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the, the trilogy in the first two books. It keeps kind of building up and it definitely felt like each book was getting better and set for a pretty awesome finish. Can't wait to start diving into that one. In other news, we also are going to be reading um, a new book in May, and that is going to be the second book in the Thrawn Ascendancy trilogy called Greater Good. And Timothy Zahn announced today, which is uh, Thursday, April 1st, that the third book, which is called Lesser Evil has a release date now. So Lesser Evil is officially going to drop on November 16th. And Christian, this is very fast. Timothy Zahn put on his Facebook, Yes, you read that correctly. The finale of the Thrawn Ascendancy trilogy will be published less than seven months after book two and less than 15 months after book one. So Timothy Zahn has been incredibly busy, as have the publishers and editors and everybody else, I'm sure. But uh, I absolutely love the Thrawn books, and I can't wait to dive into that as well. Yeah, wow. that's uh, I actually didn't know that. I kind of got home uh, just before this podcast we started recording, so I haven't really been too on social media. That's really incredible, especially for how detailed Zahn's books are. Uh, we're talking about Alexander Freed and how detailed his books are. Zahn might be the same or even more. I don't know how he can write that fast at such a high quality. And I'm sure these books are very high quality. We just keep getting new Star Wars content and it's just so hard to keep up. And I'm all for it. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. I've said it before and I say it all the time, but it's a perfect time to be a Star Wars fan right now. Um, just so much to to get into, whether it's the movies or the books or the comics or the games or, or whatever it might be. There's just never-ending content coming out, and it's great. It's also bad for my wallet, um, but it's great. So thanks, everyone, for joining us on our book club podcast where we discussed Into the Dark by Claudia Gray for the month of March. We're very excited for April's book, Victory's Price, and hopefully you guys will join us there. We have discussion questions that we post every week, three of them, every single week on the chapters for that week, which are always going to be uh, pinned at the top of the page of our book club uh, for that month, which will give you uh, the chapter breakdown for us. 
and we're just going to continue on going with these Star Wars books as long as they continue to produce them, which they are definitely not going to be slowing down on that. So before we go, uh, if you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, on Twitter, we are at TSO Book Club. And then we have a group on Facebook, which is just TSO Book Club. And that is just ask to join. We'll accept you. It's a, it's a uh, public group. So definitely join us there. And then Christian, if people want to see what you're up to and all that, where can they find you? Go ahead and follow me on Twitter at underscore CC Baseball. My writing has definitely really slowed down lately with school, um, but I do graduate this spring. So hopefully after that, I have a little bit more time to write. Um, but I did also write a book, Linking Galaxies. All the details on that are on my profile. You can find it on Amazon, physical copy, ebook, and audiobook. Once again, thanks for joining us on the Book Club Podcast. We'll see you in April. And as always, may the force be with you. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Twin Suns Podcast Network. May the force be with you. Hellmaster, Tatooine. It's controlled by the hut. Rendezvous point on Halloween. This time you will murder to meet the king.